everyone. I'm Raj. And I'm Eddie. And this is Blood Cancer Talks. We are a podcast that's exclusively dedicated to hematologic malignancies, where we bring in content experts who live and breathe a particular disease and focus on the latest advances in biology and clinical management. Please take a moment to rate and review our podcast in whichever app you listen to your podcast in. Today, we are excited to talk about prophylaxis for graft-versus-host disease in allogeneic hematopoietic cell transplantation. We're delighted to be joined by Dr. Shernan Halton. Dr. Halton is an Associate Professor of Medicine at the University of Minnesota. She's an expert in all things allogeneic transplant and has led some landmark trials in the field of GVHD prophylaxis. Thank you so much for joining us. To start with, Dr. Halton, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your clinical and research focus? Thank you so much for the invitation. I'm happy to be here. I've been working on making allogeneic transplants safer for almost 20 years now. I absolutely love this field and I'm so excited by the changes that have been made recently with some of our clinical research. Most of my work involves writing and conducting investigator initiated clinical trials, but I do a fair amount of work in translational medicine as well. I've looked at biomarkers of graft-versus-host disease and developed one that I think is quite good for monitoring graft-versus-host disease, acute GVHD, I should specify, and that's amphiregulin. We can certainly touch on that later. Outside of graft-versus-host disease, I focus on supporting holistic health through transplant. I talk to my patients a lot about resistance training and nutrition and have done some clinical trials surrounding this as well. So I think that's still an unmet need in transplant, uh, although, as you mentioned, most of my work has been in graft-versus-host disease prevention and treatment. All right, thanks for joining. So let us jump right in. We will start with a case and then we'll discuss the data as we go. So this 68-year-old female with um, FLT3-ITD-positive acute myeloid leukemia who was referred to bone marrow transplant during induction therapy with 7 plus 3 plus mitostorin. She achieved a morphologic complete remission with less than 5% blast post-induction therapy and then proceeded with a reduced intensity conditioning allogeneic transplant with a mashed unrelated donor. She got fludarabine and melphalan conditioning. The planned GVHD prophylaxis was post-transplant cyclophosphamide along with tacrolimus and mycophenolate mofetil. The transplant hospitalization was largely uneventful. She engrafted her absolute neutrophil count on day plus 18 and developed grade 1 acute graft-versus-host disease with some gastrointestinal symptoms requiring oral budesonide, but nothing severe. The mycophenolate mofetil was stopped around day 35, and she's currently around day plus 80 and remains on tacrolimus alone. So with that case in the background, let's talk about some of the data on the biology and management of GVHD prophylaxis. So as I alluded to in this case, this patient received post-transplant cytoxin, you know, which we, we call as PTSI commonly, along with tacrolimus and mycophenolate mofetil for GVHD prophylaxis, which is the current standard of care based on a landmark randomized control trial that you led. But before we go into that, can you tell us the historical background as to how we got to tacrolimus plus methotrexate as the standard of care for a few de decades before the arrival of post-transplant cyclophosphamide and the, the data surrounding that. Sure. So the case you described is someone who's really receiving modern therapy. That's what we hope to be seeing in our hospitals today. However, when I was in training, this patient would have received probably cyclosporin methotrexate or tacrolimus methotrexate. Um, it was back in the 1980s when the pivotal clinical trials were performed that showed that adding a calcineurin inhibitor to single agent methotrexate improved on graft-versus-host disease-related outcomes. And so it has been since the mid-1980s since we've been using that doublet of a CNI or a calcineurin inhibitor plus methotrexate. Now, the field is obviously made a lot of progress, and there have been multiple preclinical studies that have been promising leading to clinical trials, but really not much had moved the needle in terms of graft-versus-host disease prophylaxis until very recently. We basically have found that more intensification of immunosuppression didn't really help overall outcomes. We always paid a price, right? So if we gave more intense immunosuppression, such as with ATG, we could certainly have lower graft-versus-host disease rates but we unfortunately paid for it by increased relapse, increased infection, or other causes of mortality. So basically we had this conundrum where, okay, we could move the dial 
in where one way or the other, but we ended up paying for it in some way. And so the advancements that you've been alluding to are really the first time where we have not had to sacrifice some of those outcomes for better graft versus host disease control. And what are the toxicities of methotrexate, which why most patients and physicians don't like using it? What are the common toxicities? Methotrexate for graft versus host disease prophylaxis is given intravenously, typically given on days plus one, three, six, and 11, or there is a mini dose methotrexate that's on days plus one, three, and six. The intravenous methotrexate is not a huge dose, but it certainly adds significant mucosal toxicity. So if someone has already gotten conditioning chemotherapy and sometimes radiation, they're already dealing with mucositis and you add the methotrexate on top and you can have substantial mucosal toxicity. That's certainly the case when we're combining this with myeloblative transplantation or near myeloblative transplant, which is what you described with fludarabine and melphalan. So highly toxic to the mucosa. Patients have difficulty eating. They have weight loss, malnutrition, diarrhea that can sometimes last several weeks after the transplant. So mucosal toxicities are the principal concern that we have. There are other toxicities that we worry about as well. Hepatic toxicity, potential for pulmonary toxicity, and the potential for accumulation in fluid spaces. So if someone has developed a pleural effusion, pericardial effusion, or ascites, methotrexate can accumulate in those spaces. And the longer methotrexate lasts in the body, the higher the levels over time, the greater chance you have of not engrafting. You might actually wipe out your stem cells uh, that you just gave by high levels of methotrexate. And so if you have the, those fluid accumulations, that was always a contraindication to giving methotrexate. So before we go on to some of the modern data, what was the historical benchmark percentage of grade three or higher acute GVHD and grade three or higher chronic GVHD with CNI plus methotrexate? You know, that depended a bit upon uh, patient age, sex matching, the matching of the graft, stem cell source, conditioning, other factors. But historically, we were quoting somewhere between a 50% grade two to four acute graft versus host disease and up to 20% grade three to four acute graft versus host disease. So, you know, a lot of patients dealing with acute graft versus host disease and a substantial portion with life-threatening acute graft versus host disease. Chronic graft versus host disease varied a little bit more, uh, again, based upon those similar factors. What was the, the stem cell source? Was it bone marrow or peripheral blood? What was the sex match, the HLA match, so on and so forth. Uh, but when I was in training, someone receiving a matched unrelated peripheral blood stem cell graft could have up to a 75% risk of chronic graft versus host disease. You know, so 10, 15 years ago, we were seeing a lot of patients receiving these unrelated uh, donor, matched unrelated donor peripheral blood stem cell grafts, and consequently a lot of chronic graft versus host disease. Wow, those seem really high. 25% is like very rarely somebody will not have it. Correct. Um, yeah. So now let's talk about GVHD prophylaxis with post-transplant cyclophosphamide or PTSI, which was pioneered by Hopkins in the setting of haploidentical transplantation. So first of all, can you explain for our audience how does post-transplant cyclophosphamide work for GVHD prophylaxis? You know, to be honest, we're still learning how PTSI works. Um, when I first heard about it, we were told, and, and it made sense, that post-transplant cyclophosphamide kills rapidly proliferating cells. And so the concept is you put in the stem cell graft that contains the mature T cells. Those that become alloreactive are rapidly proliferating and you give the chemotherapy and you kill the rapidly proliferating alloreactive T cells, sparing the stem cells because they have an enzyme that can metabolize out the cyclophosphamide. And so that made sense as an oncologist. Okay, chemo kills rapidly proliferating cells. Cool, that's the story. Well, it turns out, of course, it's more complicated than that. There is an observation of expansion of regulatory T cells, a suppressive T cell subset after post-transplant cyclophosphamide. And now, you know, we've been telling patients, well, not only might it kill some malareactive T cells, but it also supports the growth of a, a peacekeeper inside of the body that will prevent graft versus host disease from happening. Well, it's even more complicated than that. And I'm sure there's so much more to learn. We're learning from preclinical pre studies that PTSI induces an expansion of myeloid-derived suppressor cells 
after a release of set colony stimulating factors from the bone marrow microenvironment. So you get this expansion of MDSCs. That's the primary effect, possibly. And that supports the Tregs, which is the indirect effect. And so that's kind of where we're at now. It's a little bit more complicated to explain it to patients, but we do our best. But to be honest, I think we're really still learning about the mechanism. This question might be out of date, but I was always sort of taught with PTSI, which we were sort of just getting to learn to use in Australia during my training, but that you absolutely shouldn't give steroids in the first three days between giving the graft and giving PTSI because you want those rapidly proliferating cells to proliferate. Is That sort of fits with what you were just saying, but I wanted to check, is that still the case? And is that, that still the thinking as, you know, to really try and avoid steroids in that three-day window? So that's still the dogma. That's still our practice. We do everything to avoid steroids. And, and how this comes up is obviously, historically, we might have given steroids as a part of an antiemetic regimen, and now we can't use them. Or if there is any inflammatory complication post-transplant, like a cytokine release syndrome type phenomenon, we're not using steroids. Is that truly the case? I'm not sure that we know. And that dogma might be challenged in the future. We're already seeing studies where the calcineurin inhibitor is given before the cyclophosphamide started, even before the cells go in sometimes. You know, we used to start typically our GVHD prophylaxis on day minus three with the typical calcineurin inhibitor-based regimen. With PTSI, we're usually starting the supporting medications on day plus five after the cyclophosphamide is given on days plus three and plus four. Well, now we're seeing really nice results from certain studies where the, the calcineurin inhibitor or other agent is even started sooner. We don't know. I think there's so much yet to learn about that. So it's sort of an evolving space, but for the moment, we're still avoiding steroids. I just think it's interesting because the dogma shifted so much in the CAR-T world away, you know, from don't give, don't touch the steroids to maybe it's okay. And so that's, that was sort of where my question was coming from. I anticipate we might see something similar with post-transplant cyclophosphamide. Right. So now can you tell us a little bit about the BMT-CTN-1203 study that tried to improve upon uh, tacromethotrexate? And for the audience, it was a, a randomized controlled trial, which compared three regimens. It was a PTSI with tacro and mycophenolate atmophytyl versus tacromethotrexate and bortezomib versus tacromethotrexate and maraviroc. And they used a control of tacromethotrexate. It was a historical control from the registry. Uh, so can you tell us more about the study and what were the key findings of the study? This was a really important study and the BMT-CTN does terrific work that sometimes wouldn't be possible outside of that network. So one thing that you can always tell about the BMT-CTN is when the protocol was first developed by the number of the protocol. So this concept was first developed in 2012. So basically we're going back and coming up with novel regimens for GVHD prophylaxis and wanting to compare multiple different regimens in a randomized phase two setting. There are multiple labs and multiple single center studies that look really promising. So let's compare them in a randomized fashion in a multi-center study. And the, the three arms that you described were going to be then compared to TAC methotrexate. And that wasn't retrospective. Actually, those were patients who were prospectively given TAC methotrexate, but were not on study. So they were called contemporaneous controls. One of the risks that you have if you're using a retrospective cohort in any disease, of course, but certainly transplant, is that supportive care and other factors improve outcomes in the modern era compared to historical. And so this was an important point that is actually contemporaneous controls. And among the three arms of BMT-CTN-1203, the one that had the best outcome was post-transplant cyclophosphamide, tacrolimus, and MMF. And the outcome of interest was a composite endpoint. This was historically not really done in the transplant world. Of course, the cardiologists and others are well known for their composite endpoints in clinical trials. And so we worked together to develop something called graft-versus-host disease-free relapse-free survival, or GRIFS. And so this composite endpoint contains what we thought were the most important endpoints to, to include. So an an event on this composite endpoint was grade three to four acute graft-versus-host disease, chronic graft-versus-host disease requiring systemic immunosuppression, relapse or progression, or death within the first year, whichever happened first. 
And so this is showing that we want to have control of graft versus host disease, but we don't want to pay for it in another way. So other studies that might've had that favorable GVHD outcome had other toxicities that made the overall survival or some other endpoint kind of irrelevant. And now we wanted to combine those in a composite endpoint to show we're actually improving outcomes without paying for it in some other way. Yes, that reminds me of the T-cell lymphoma randomized trial where the exactly the same as you're saying before, as the uh, relapse rate went down, the toxicity, the non-relapse mortality went up by exactly the same amount. And so, again, perhaps a basic question, but of course, one of the initial goals of PTSI was to expand access to donors because not everyone has a matched unrelated donor or a sibling donor, a matched sibling donor. And so my understanding is that PTSI made haploidentical transplants much more accessible. And so I guess my question is, what prompted you then to take it from, I guess, you know, mud transplants and sibling donor transplants were already working well. So what prompted you to kind of take it from Haplo, the haplo world and bring it into the mud world? One of the attractive features of PTSI is its simplicity. And you don't have to give drugs for a long period of time. The entire benefit of that prophylaxis package is done within the first 100 days of transplant. And so it's fairly quick. It's fairly easy. We're used to working with chemotherapy and that just makes it so translatable. Before BMTCTN1203, there were a number of single center studies that were exploring PTSI in the match setting with very promising looking preliminary results. And so this was really the, the first main attempt at comparing it to other regimens in a randomized fashion. And so let's move to BMT-CTN-1703, which was um, published in the New England Journal earlier this year. Of course, this was a randomized controlled trial, um, which enrolled about 430 adults with hematologic malignancies, uh, about half AML, about a third MDS, and then uh, the kind of the rest were, were a few ALLs and a few others. Randomized one-to-one to receive either PTSI, TACRA, and mycophenolate or TACRO plus methotrexate, the control arm. And you included match-related donor, match-unrelated donor, and a seven out of eight mismatch unrelated donor in the trial, and only patients including reduced intensity conditioning. So my first question is, if I got that all right, was why did you choose to only include patients with receiving reduced intensity conditioning? That's a great question. There was already a competing study within the BMT-CTN looking at myeloblative conditioning. That was BMT-CTN 1301. This was another randomized study that was going on in the myeloblative space, looking at calcineurin inhibitor-free GBHD prophylaxis regimens. Since there was already that trial ongoing, this one was just going to focus and really be the planned follow-on to 1203. So the, the, the plan was always do 1203 in the reduced intensity setting and take that same population into a phase three study with the winner of 1203. And so, as you mentioned, the prim- the, the context for the primary endpoint, which was GRIFs, as you call it, GVHD-free, relapse-free survival. Can you tell us what the top line results of the trial were with regards to GRIFs? So we were very happy to see that post-transplant cyclophosphamide was associated with a much higher GRIFs than TAC methotrexate. Uh, we powered the study to see at least a 15% difference. We thought that would be clinically meaningful. If we saw a 5% difference, would that be enough to really move the needle in the entire field? Could we swing for the fences and have a 20% difference or 25%? That seemed kind of too optimistic. And so as we were developing the protocol, we thought that threshold was meaningful. And so that's how we powered the study. And indeed, we did we did meet that endpoint. So at one year, those receiving post-transplant cyclophosphamide, TAC, and MMF had a 53% GRIFs compared to about a 35% GRIFs with TAC methotrexate. So PTSI won, but I just want to emphasize here, we're not done in the field because still nearly half of the patients had events with PTSI right? So there's clearly still more work that we need to do, Um, but it did move the needle in what we thought was a clinically meaningful differential. And so now we're starting to see centers really around the country, around the world adopting this platform. 
And could you talk a little bit about the different components of the endpoint in terms of acute chronic GVHD relapse and overall survival? Right. So with, within the composite endpoint, those components, again, they matter, right? So acute graft-versus-host disease rates were cut in half, roughly, with PT size. So with tacmethotrexate, around 15% of patients developed grade three to four acute graft-versus-host disease. It was about half that at about six and a half percent with post-transplant cyclophosphamide. And so, you know, just think about this. Fewer than 10% of patients had life-threatening acute graft-versus-host disease. And then with chronic graft-versus-host disease requiring systemic immunosuppression, those rates were also cut in about half. At one year, about a quarter of patients or 25% were receiving systemic immunosuppression for chronic GVHD on the control arm, tacmethotrexate. With PTSI, that was 12.5%. So basically, life-threatening acute graft-versus-host disease and chronic GVHD that carries a lot of comorbidities where people have to be on long-term medications, that those risks were cut in half with PTSI with no difference in the relapse rate. So the relapse at one year in both arms was about 20%. So we didn't pay for it there. And there was also no difference in deaths due to other toxicities, infections, so on and so forth. So the magnitude of the benefit in that composite endpoint was all due to reduction of severe acute and chronic graft-versus-host disease. And you mentioned those incredibly impressive results with regards to GVHD. So the PT side is kind of clearly doing what uh, you hoped it would do. Can you talk about the toxicities, things like infections, viral reactivation, cystitis, were any of those noticeably different in the PTSI group? Certainly. You know, this was always a concern, especially having experience with PTSI from the haplo um, setting. There's certainly a concern for infections. Indeed, overall infections were increased with PTSI, but not severe or life-threatening infections. The BMT-CTN has its own grading system for the severity of infections. And so the, the really bad infections that are potentially uh, very morbid or life-threatening are called grade three infections. There was no increase in grade three infections with PTSI. There was an increase in grade two infections though. And most of these events were within the first 100 days. So managed by the transplant center, able to be overcome, you know, certainly may have required some more intervention, uh, but nothing that was going to be a prolonged type of infection-related toxicity. Some of the other things that we're, you know, watching out for, hemorrhagic cystitis was a concern. Stay tuned. So, well, I can't talk about it. <laughs> Stay tuned. <laughs> And then other toxicities that were always a concern, organ toxicities, cardiac toxicity in particular with PTSI. There are some reports of cardiotoxicity out there in the literature. There were a small number of patients who did have cardiotoxicity early post-transplant with PTSI, a few more than on the tacrolimus methotrexate arm, not statistically significant because the numbers were so small, but certainly there were a few cases. And so this obviously requires, I think, further investigation, further careful study as we go forward with PTSI. It's still a rare event, relatively speaking, to have cardiotoxicity, but I, I think it's undeniable. We have seen it at the University of Minnesota. Others have reported on it as well. I think we're learning from the literature that cardiotoxicity can take many forms. We're most commonly seeing arrhythmias or a drop in EF or pericarditis. Less frequently are we seeing acute coronary syndrome or things like that. We have fortunately not had fatal events, but we definitely have noticed that there are some cases with this, perhaps more than we have seen in the past, because this was always a risk that we would note around the time of conditioning, especially with PSI-TBI conditioning, or in some patients who were, were predisposed, especially after the stem cell infusion. So I definitely do think there is a signal. I think there is a lot more work to be done. Um, we have some exciting work that we're looking at with blood samples to try to understand biologically who might be susceptible to this and what might be happening with these types of events so that we can mitigate them. Uh, but definitely an area that needs more investigation, especially as we're doing transplants in older individuals. If you look at the median age of those on BMT-CTN 1703, I believe the median age was 66. Median. 
age was 66. So I think we do have to pay attention to this, especially in those with pre-existing cardiac comorbidities. Yeah, that is, I hadn't uh, quite appreciated how how high that is for a median age for allogeneic transplant trial. Mm-hmm. And my general question is, what do you think the steps are to optimize PTSI going forward? But my specific question is, do you think we have the right dose at the moment? I think you use 50 milligrams per kilogram day three and day four, so 100 milligrams per kilogram. Do you think that's the right dose? What do you, how do you think we'll optimize it going forward? There are studies looking at reducing the dose. We know from the Hopkins experience that 25 milligrams per kilogram on those two days seem to be inferior than higher doses, Uh, but this really needs further study and and larger studies. So multiple centers, and there's even a a large multi-center study that's going forward, it will be doing um, dose de-escalation to try to understand what is the optimal dose. Something that we are doing at Minnesota is we are dosing on ideal body weight. We used to dose on actual body weight. I mean, we're, we're large, we're beefy in Minnesota. (laughs) So that means more exposure for certain patients. And so now that we're doing that, I think we're seeing some really good results and potentially lowering some of those toxicities. It does seem that two days of cyclophosphamide is important, but I think we'll probably have more studies going on to mitigate some of the, the side effects and especially surrounding the cardiotoxicity and finding ways to optimize the dose going forward. But I think we're already pretty close. If you look at the clinical trial results, this was not a cherry picked population of patients going through transplant and they did well. And I guess tantalizingly, the question is, do you think there'll be an overall survival benefit with a bit more follow-up? I'm excited to see those results too. So I don't have any knowledge but we're really interested to see this. Do I personally think there will be an overall survival advantage? Personally, having seen the chronic graft versus host disease that happens in patients who don't receive PTSI, yes. I expect that with longer follow-up, we'll have an improved overall survival, but that remains to be seen. I, I don't have any actual knowledge. All right. So now let's talk about your phase two trial of PTSI in patients receiving allogeneic transplant with myeloablative conditioning, which was published recently. So first of all, you know, what motivated you to pursue this investigator initiated trial? I think it started accruing in 2018. So I would imagine that you probably were planning it even before that. So what led you to to pursue this IIT? Correct. So this investigator-initiated study of post-transplant cyclophosphamide TAC and MMF in the myeloablative setting is something that we started doing at the University of Minnesota around that time. I started writing the trial in 2015, so before BMT-CTN-1703, and I started writing it based upon the results of a phase two study at the Fred Hutch, looking at post-transplant cyclophosphamide cyclosporin MMF in the match setting. That study showed remarkably low rates of chronic graft-versus-host disease, astonishingly low. I couldn't believe it. And I said, I need to see if this is real. We need to duplicate this at Minnesota. But the only substitution I'm going to make is I'm going to change cyclosporin and I'm going to make that tacrolimus. Tacro is a little more potent immunosuppression. And so let's see if we can uh, replicate what was seen in Seattle, but maybe even reduce the acute GBHD. So in the Seattle study, they had a fair number, I believe it was up to 75% of patients having grade two, mostly skin GBHD. So that's not life-threatening, but it is a nuisance for sure to be covered in a skin rash and sometimes having to take prednisone. So let's see if we can improve upon that. But most importantly, let's see if we can have low rates of chronic GBHD in this setting. So the primary endpoint of the phase two study that we wrote was chronic GVHD requiring systemic immune suppression at one year. My colleagues thought it was a little crazy. I'm not going to lie. Like, why don't you just do acute? I'm like, well, I mean, acute is important, but the long-term morbidity is something that I really want to mitigate. So let's make chronic the primary endpoint. We're going to power the study around that. And we had a pretty novel approach where our conditioning was only total body irradiation. Again, I got the, what are you doing? Why? Why just TBI? Don't you need chemo and then TBI? Or how how are you going to do that? And I said, look, this is what happened with the Seattle study. It was TBI alone or Buflu. We had a Buflu arm as well, but you know, most of our patients are getting TBI at Minnesota. Our radon team is phenomenal. And so the shielding and, and all the toxicities are really 
quite manageable compared to how I've seen TBI sometimes elsewhere. So TBI conditioning alone, which was so easy to do, and then your stem cell infusion on day zero, post-transplant cyclophosphamide, days three and four, TAC, MMF on day five. So we accrued both adult and pediatrics patients. Um, we didn't specify the graft source. It could be bone marrow or peripheral blood. Um, we allowed seven of eights as well on the study. And interestingly, the results of this phase two were published around the same time as the New England Journal of Medicine uh, paper, where indeed we saw astonishingly low rates of chronic graft-versus-host disease. In our phase two myeloblative study, the one-year chronic GVHD rate um, requiring a systemic immune suppression was around 6%. It's so different. I can't emphasize this enough. To have fewer than 10% of your patients needing immunosuppression at one year is so different than when I was being trained with up to 75% of patients having long-term complications and coming in to you know, have a boost of their prednisone because their GVHD is flaring or all the other complications that go with it. I just can't even tell you how much our experience in clinic and our experience with our practice has changed moving to PTSI in the myeloblative setting. And then once the 1703 results became available, everyone else uh, changed to PTSI as well. So there, I, I can't think of any regimens that we use right now, either reduced intensity non-myeloblative or a myeloblative at the U for adult transplants that don't have PTSI. It really sounds like PTSI is the Goldilocks of, of allogeneic transplant. You know, it's not a cakewalk. It's still intense chemo. It's still a lot of time in the hospital. Something that we observed with our phase two myeloblative study is that there was still a lot of mucosal toxicities. About 75% of the patients ended up on TPN for at least some duration. So it's not to say it's easy, but once you got through it, people were well, you know, we didn't have people coming in and out of the hospital with various issues. You made it through your initial hospitalization. You continue to engraft. Life was good. Sent home at day 100. And we're seeing you at anniversary visits instead of every week dealing with lots of complications. So I can't be happier with the results of that study and what we're seeing clinically right now with that change. So is there any particular setting right now where you would not use PTSI or um, pretty much every transplant you're using PTSI? For adult transplantation, we're using PTSI for everybody. What this has meant is that we're not seeing many cases of severe acute or chronic graft-versus-host disease. We're now battling really the last big dragon in transplant, and that's relapse. So we're, we're not seeing worse relapse per se, but more people are living and not dying of other complications. And so we're, we're having more people survive. And that means we are seeing more relapse over time. Just numerically, that's the survival bias that you see. And so our two-year relapse outcomes in myeloblative transplant showed that around a third of patients are, are relapsing even after a myeloblative transplant. That's clearly too many. And so now all of our research focus is on improving immune reconstitution, um, using novel therapies to try to mitigate relapse, developing better conditioning regimens that are more specific, using maintenance therapies, really all hands on deck, trying different modalities to then slay that final dragon. Yeah, you mentioned that there was a BMTCTN trial, which is a randomized trial on a PT sign myeloablative conditioning. Is that still ongoing? Can you talk more about that? Yeah, I can talk about that briefly. That trial, BMTCTN 1301, is completed. It is published. It was unfortunately a bit different than the setting that we've been talking about here. In that setting, the post-transplant cyclophosphamide arm was only post-transplant cyclophosphamide with a bone marrow graft. And so that's those are two issues that we're not really using or not dealing with on a day-to-day -day basis. So most of our patients nowadays, we're using peripheral blood stem cell grafts. It's just obviously so much easier for the donors. And we're not using PTSI alone. We're using it in combination with something. We do know that it needs some partners for its you know, optimal efficacy as a package. And so unfortunately those results haven't really translated to anything practice changing, at least in my opinion, and it hasn't changed practice at Minnesota, just too different of a platform. 
And so just to recap that briefly, the my understanding is that bone marrow grafts have lower rates of GVHD, but also higher rates of relapse. And so are typically used for non-malignant transplants. Correct. And so what was the thinking? Presumably most of these patients getting myeloablative transplants. What was the thinking to use the bone marrow grafts there? Yeah, it used to be at Minnesota. This is historical. Anytime we went for an unrelated donor, we actually requested bone marrow. And that was to reduce the rates of chronic GVHD. So Minnesota and that practice has led to a lower chronic GVHD rate than many other centers because of that preference. Obviously, in the PTCI era, I don't think we need to put donors through that anymore. And so I would actually challenge the transplant community to convince me, convince us that we need bone marrow grafts, even for non-malignant disease, if we're using PTCI. You know, just think about the donor, think about the immune reconstitution, and think about the really low risks of acute and chronic graft-versus-host disease that's severe, regardless of the setting now with PTCI. I think we have to ask ourselves this question, do we really need bone marrow for anything anymore? Yeah, that's kind of an example of how evidence can come with an expiry date, right? So we had really good evidence that peripheral blood causes more GVHD than bone marrow, but we have to put it in the context of what other other things have changed now and with the GVHD prophylaxis, I think that's really intriguing. So I think next we wanted to briefly uh, chat a bit about Abatacept, given that it's been FDA approved as GVHD prophylaxis. What's the kind of putative mechanism of action and, and what are your thoughts generally about ACEPT as, as GVHD prophylaxis? Yeah, so it was exciting to have an FDA approval for graft-versus-host disease prophylaxis. This has never happened be before in the history of our field. So it's remarkable now that we actually have a drug that's FDA approved. Everything up until this time has been off-label. Uh, the mechanism of Abatacept, it's a CTLA-4 agonist. So basically it's blocking that signal two of T-cell stimulation. So blocking co-stimulation. It's FDA approved for other autoimmune conditions. And so now used in the transplant setting and shows significant efficacy in reducing acute graft-versus-host disease. And so based upon those results, was FDA approved. Now, one of the downsides to ABBA, in, in my very personal opinion, is we're not moving the needle there on chronic graft-versus-host disease. If you look at the rates of chronic GVHD in those studies, they're still as high as you might expect with TAC methotrexate or TAC MMF. For my patients, I want to see them at one year and I want to be able to stop all the medications they're taking. You know, I want to see if we can avoid the long-term morbidity of so many medications and especially chronic graft-versus-host disease. And so I'm personally not using this. I'm using PTSI. And that's the case for my colleagues at the University of Minnesota. Other centers may be using it, but again, the chronic GVHD piece of that is, is so different between PTSI and ABBA that it really takes a lot of thought. In the adult field, I still think PTSI is the better option, but there's not been a randomized study. And so, you know, that may occur and we, we may learn more. In pediatrics, I think this is actually a, a legitimate question that we should consider you know, what is the right GVHD prophylaxis in pediatric transplantation? I take care of adults. And so my opinion is not worth much here. I have to be honest and, and disclose that. Uh, but my pediatrics colleagues understandably are not excited by the relapse rates that they see after PTSI. So look at the University of Minnesota's data. We did accrue pediatric patients on our phase two myeloblative study. And up to 50% of the kids, it was a small group, but up to 50% of them had relapsed at two years. Certainly that's higher than we want. The kids are more resilient. Generally, they're not having the toxicities of transplant as adults, and they have a lower risk of chronic GVHD at baseline. And so perhaps in pediatric transplantation, that might be the best case use for abatacept. Maybe we're not having to worry about chronic GVHD in that population so much. And, and perhaps that is the best application. Again, that's my personal opinion only. Was that, did that signal extend into the adults as in, you said the median age was 66, but did you look at, you know, was it something to do with the age of the health of the T cells or the T cell phenotype that meant that the 20 and 30 year olds in your study had different responses to PTCI to the 70 year olds? 
or were the numbers so, kind of not enough to make that to do that analysis? Yeah, difficult to say, but the main difference between what we've been talking about with our phase two myeloablative study and BMTCT and 1703 is the length of follow-up. So the University of Minnesota phase two study, we report two-year outcomes. And we only know one-year outcomes for BMTCT and 1703. So that relapse question is a valid one. I think we'll need to see that with longer follow-up of 1703. Totally. Now, we before we ask your sort of thoughts on where to next, I did want to take you up on your offer to talk a bit about Amphiregulin and, and tell us sort of how that came about and whether you use it clinically and kind of give us a bit of context about that. Absolutely. So I've always been interested in finding non-invasive ways to measure graft versus host disease. Measuring a skin rash is sort of easy, but even that has its nuance where you're just grading the erythema, not the overall rash. The GI tract is so much more challenging because there is variation due to diet. If someone drinks a milkshake and they have some lactose intolerance that was brought about by GVH, you all of a sudden have more diarrhea, C. diff, CMV, other infections, medications like MMF. There's so many variables that go into trying to stage GI GVHD. It was really, really frustrating to be able to do well. And so I've always been interested in biomarkers, obviously very interested in the work that the magic group is doing, but I'm stubborn and want to do my own thing. So, so my own thing started with wanting to look at tissue repair factors. So, you know, we're focused on the graft. What's the graft doing? What's happening with the T cells? Okay. Well, I want to know what the person is, what is the host experiencing? And so I just started off by having a subset of patients with severe acute graft versus host disease compared to controls. And I looked at tissue repair and angiogenic or vascular factors in the blood and noted a striking uh, finding. And that was that epidermal growth factor levels were very low in acute graft versus host disease. And so I thought, okay, well, this is interesting. You know, you, you want EGF to repair tissues. What else in the EGF family might be abnormal? And so we had samples from the chronic GVHD consortium with some late acute GVHD samples and some BMT-CTN samples. And with those biorepositories, we showed that there is actually another EGF family member that's probably the best biomarker of graft-versus-host disease activity, and that's amphiregulin. Amphiregulin is a weak EGFR ligand. EGF is a very strong EGFR ligand. So in the normal circulation, you should have a good level of EGF, but amphiregulin should be low. Amphiregulin should be in the tissues where it's helping to promote tissue repair. We found that in acute GVHD, amphiregulin levels are very high in the serum or plasma, and then validated that in multiple studies. And then also validated that longitudinally using two different clinical trials. We had samples from REACH1, which was the study looking at ruxolitinib in steroid refractory acute GVHD. And then we had samples from our uh, internal study, which was looking at human chorionic gonadotropin or pregnancy hormones to help improve wound healing and tissue tolerance after GVHD. In both of those prospective studies, Patients had high infraregulin levels at the start of the study, and as they responded, those levels came down. Patients who did not respond to therapy, infraregulin stayed elevated. And so that gave us a clue that this actually looks like a decent monitoring biomarker, and it performed better than ST2 or REG3-alpha as individual biomarkers. We did look at the Ann Arbor scores, as many people do. That's the combination of ST2 and REG3-alpha. And so many patients already had a high Ann Arbor score you know, that's only three strata and our one, two or three. So, you know, you don't, you can't get worse than three, <laughs> but amphiregulin, we, you can measure an actual concentration, like measuring a creatinine for kidney function. And so I thought, you know, that's actually clinically quite useful. So after all of that, I can say that we are using it clinically now. It's not an FDA approved biomarker, but that's something I'd like to work on. Our hospital lab will run it for us though in hospitalized patients when we're trying to sort out, does someone have GI, GVHD? So that's really its utility is in GI, GVHD. We'll have a situation where someone has diarrhea, we're working them up and we don't, we don't know. And, and maybe the biopsy is equivocal. So what we tend to do clinically is we'll check amphiregulin and we'll check fecal calprotectin. That's something that our hospital lab will also do. If those are normal, 
then we're leaning away from a diagnosis of graft-versus-host disease. If those are elevated, then it's suggesting active inflammation and we're leading towards GVHD. This comes up because the biopsy is sometimes not as helpful as we would like it to be, especially early post-transplant. You might be dealing with MMF toxicity or other you know, regenerative processes. A real-life clinical scenario that I had recently was someone with life-threatening disseminated adenovirus multi-organ involvement with adenovirus, including the GI tract. And the biopsies show some crypt apoptosis. Okay, is this GVHD? If it is, I'm gonna give this person immunosuppression and they might die from adenovirus. But if it's not GVHD, I don't wanna give this person steroids. I need to protect their immune system with everything I have and let them just recover. And so that was actually the scenario that we followed amphiregulin, we followed fecal uh, calprotect, and you couldn't tell because the diarrhea was happening, you know, 18 times a day. You, you just couldn't tell clinically. And these values were very lower in the normal range. So we said, okay, don't give this person steroids. Let's wait this out. And we actually waited it out a few weeks and it worked out. So eventually, all of the antivirals kicked in, the patient recovered their immune system, they walked out of the hospital adenovirus free, and we never gave them steroids, even though they're, they had a biopsy suggestive of it, and we're having, you know, 20 episodes of stool a day. So it was a really helpful set of biomarkers in that circumstance. A steroid sparing agent of sorts. Yes, exactly. You know, it used to be that, okay, well, we'll just hand out prednisone like Tic Tacs. We don't want to do that, right? No, we totally. we want to do everything we can to avoid giving high dose steroids. I think it would be great to sort of come back generally to ask you, where do you think the field of PT psi is heading next? And where do you think the field of GVHD prophylaxis in general is heading in the next kind of 10 or 20 years? Great. So PT psi has just changed our practice so much. And I'm interested to see how this translates around the country and around the world. I think it certainly does reduce barriers to transplant, really essentially eliminating the HLA barrier. So now that everyone has a donor, and that's remarkable, it's simple, it's contained early post-transplant. So I'm, I'm really excited to see how this goes with the translation, you know, throughout the country, throughout the world, the dose might be optimized, but I'm certain there are better partners than tacrolimus and MMF. So PTSI alone is not enough. What else can we do? Well, something that we're testing at Minnesota in a prospective study is we've taken out tacrolimus and we've substituted in serolimus. Couple reasons for that. Serolimus is a bit less immunosuppressive. It's also an oral agent. So people aren't hooked up to a continuous infusion IV, which is nice from a patient care standpoint, but it also might have benefits on immune function. If you Google serolimus or rapamycin in aging, you'll find that this drug is all over the aging literature for its aging or its rejuvenating effects on the immune system. We'll see. <laughs> I don't know. I have given strolimus to a lot of people. They don't necessarily look younger, but maybe it is a better partner than tacrolimus. So we will see. MMF. There's probably better drugs than MMF out there. Is it doing anything at all? Could we just get rid of MMF? That's a research question. Something that we're doing at Minnesota is we're taking out the MMF and we're adding in an Aurora kinase A inhibitor on a clinical research study. The goal of that is to uh, kind of like a batistep block co-stimulation, but also the Aurora kinase A inhibitor has direct anti-tumor activity. And so we give that just similar to the way we'd give MMF from day five, but to day 45 post-transplant. And we're actually trying to see if we can reduce relapse while keeping GVHD rates low. So I think that's where we're heading. Can we use kinder, gentler medications to support PTSI? Can we find agents that can help enhance GVL and take out some of these old standard drugs? And so it's crazy to say out loud, but it's true. At Minnesota, we've been methotrexate free by and large for many years. And now for the past year or so, we've been calcineurin inhibitor free too. So the two main drugs that have been used to prevent GVHD since the 80s we don't even use on our transplant unit hardly at all. Pretty remarkable. I think there is one piece that I would add for the future, and that's just being 
patient-centered as much as we can. A number of studies are being developed that have preclinical promise. Let's test them in clinical trials, but we're not always thinking about the patient experience. I hope that we can develop regimens that prevent GVHD or prevent relapse without having to take drugs for a long period of time. So most of our work is focusing on something that we can do within the first 100 days post-transplant when the patient is at the transplant center. I do think that maintenance therapies have a role and the studies are important, but wouldn't it be great if people didn't have to take drugs? Wouldn't that be better if they're not having to you know, have frequent labs, all the side effects, all the risks of long-term maintenance drugs? So I, I do support and still enroll patients on maintenance studies. But my hope for the field is that we can somehow compress that and just have it so that we're not using as many drugs for long periods of time. Just keep it as simple and brief as possible so that people can get on with their lives and not have to come back and see us so much. Yeah, I think that's a really good note to finish on. Thank you very much, Dr. Holton, for coming on. And we really enjoyed the discussion. And we'll hope to, we hope to bring you back in future for other topics related to allergenic transplantation. I appreciate thanks, the invitation. Thanks so much. Yeah, this was great. Happy to talk anytime. I can talk about transplant all day. <laughs> and thank you for tolerating our sometimes naive questions. <laughs> They're great. Absolutely great. A note to your listeners that you're hearing much better outcomes of transplant in the modern era with changes that have occurred just in the past few years, but we're only transplanting around 5% of the people who need transplants. And so if you're a hematologist or oncologist caring for patients with a hemolignancy, please refer them for transplant and let us see them. Uh, we, we can do a better job today than we have in the past. So we need to see more patients.